You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1983, the sketch comedy group uh, Monty Python came out with a movie that you may have seen called The Meaning of Life. And by the way, my mentioning it doesn't mean it's a wholesale endorsement of the film. If you're easily offended, don't watch it. Uh, But there are some real uh, gem scenes that are memorable. Uh, It's a sketch comedy movie, you know, sort of formatted a lot like something like Saturday Night Live. But uh, anyway, the film begins with a sketch where there are two fish in a restaurant, you know, the restaurant fish that are in the, um, <clears throat> the tank, um, and these two fish are witnessing their friend Howard being eaten, uh, which causes them to question the meaning of life. What's the meaning of life? And so the film raises this question, and this has become a sort of out-of-date question. You know, people used to ask, the, you remember, people used to say, what's the meaning of life? Nobody really says that anymore. It's sort of out-of-date and cliche. Um, but even if we don't ask the question in this way, we're all deep down in some way truly asking what is the meaning of life, or really we're trying to figure out our own meanings. That's the new thing. Um, but there are endless choices to create our meaning now rather than to discover it. Really, as many people as there are, the way that we talk, there are that many meanings. So in the past, the question was, what is the meaning of life? Now, it's mostly, what is the meaning of my life? Are you catching my drift of what I'm saying? That's the way most people seem to be talking. Even if that's not what they're saying, that's the way people are thinking and talking these days. Uh, Maybe not in other cultures, but here in the United States in particular. And this can lead to an even greater sense of meaninglessness and confusion, actually. If we're constantly asking, what is the meaning of my life? It can lead us, uh, ironically, to a sense of meaninglessness and confusion. Because meaning, in fact, does not need to be created. We, We don't need to... Uh, make our own meaning and craft our own identity. Uh, That's some good news, I hope, for you. Rather, God has created and redeemed us and therefore giving us meaning. We don't have to, 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 uh, to create it as much as meaning has been given to us. And his meaning surpasses any meaning we choose for ourselves. Chosen meanings can often be fleeting. There's a sort of endless cycle, like being on a a hamster wheel in terms of different identity choices that we might make. And so they might be fleeting these meanings that we choose for ourselves, at best fleeting, at at worst they can actually be soul-crushing. I spent the first 25 years of my life uh, to a certain extent trying to create the, the meaning of my life. Uh, on that sort of hamster wheel. Some past identities that I chose for myself are included to these, but th- there are more. I mean, this is just to give you a taste. You know, um, From the earliest childhood until about my mid-20s, I would have said that I was a baseball player, an only child, a football player, INFJ, a runner, a frat guy, cyclist, writer, rock climber, journalist, yogi, teacher, boyfriend, single, agnostic, atheist, spiritual, but not religious, vegetarian, vegan, I eat whatever I want, coffee drink, Urbane Volkswagen enthusiast. Do you know that my first car was a Volkswagen bus? I used to think that that was like a huge part of my identity. And then I said, I only buy new cars because Volkswagens are a total pain. 
In my search for uh, meaning among all these ever-changing uh, and consuming identities, God finally delivered a meaning uh, to me that I was not actually hoping for. But when he gave it to me, I saw its liberating power. When it was given to me, I was liberated from that, that sort of endless cycle that all my uh, self-created meanings were fleeting and, as I said, uh, potentially crushing. And I want us to see today that uh, we do not need to create our own meaning uh, in life or meaning of our lives. Trying to create our meaning will leave us to uh, be continually dissatisfied. You've probably felt this before, that continual uh, dissatisfaction of the thing that you thought you were about and then that goes away, or it, uh, it, you become disillusioned with it. Instead, I want us to see that God has created us and redeemed us, and the meaning he has uh, given us surpasses any meaning that we try to choose for ourselves, even if it's one society actually upholds as a value. There are many things that society upholds as a value uh, that, that could be a good thing, uh, but when we make it uh, the thing that we're about, it can, it can crush us. For example, for, you know, just for my own life as an example, you know, being a good father is a good thing. To be a good dad is a good thing, but if I hold it up as my ultimate meaning in life, I will uh, be disappointed. And I might not just be disappointed, I might be, as I said before, my, my soul might be crushed by it uh, because I will, I will fail. That's the thing. I, you know, I'm constantly failing as a father. And you have your own versions of this. You know, what is it uh, for you? Our passage in Joshua deals with this dilemma of meaning, this very dilemma of meaning. We've been going through Joshua, the Old Testament book of Joshua, for several weeks. And uh, we've skipped over, you'll be grateful, we've skipped over several chapters which are very laborious. It's about, just to catch you up, it's the division of the land. I mean, this is important, but it would have been difficult to slog through it for several weeks in a preaching series. It was the division of the land uh, to the different uh, tribes in Israel. They allotted the promised land by tribes. And then, last, uh, the chapter before our passage today would have actually been interesting to look at. They almost uh, had a civil war. And thankfully, that has been avoided, that close call of Israel having a civil war. But, you know, newsflash, uh, spoiler warning, they, they're going to have a, a civil war eventually. But they avoided it here in Joshua. And now uh, God gives Israel some rest. After all that, it's been 30, about 30 years since they entered the promised land and fighting battles and the division of the land by the tribes. And now we see in our passage that God gives Israel some rest and Joshua is very old and near the end of his life. And so this is the beginning of his farewell speech here in uh, chapter 23 and we'll have more of it next week. Just as if you've ever read the book of Deuteronomy, that is sort of Moses's, uh, remember Moses is Joshua's uh, predecessor. Uh, that was Moses's farewell speech to the people of Israel. And it's the same way, here's Joshua now, beginning in chapter 23, giving uh, his farewell speech. And here in 23, he essentially says three things. If you pay attention, he kind of repeats three ideas over and over again. First, Number one, he reminds them of all that the Lord has done for them for the past uh, 30 years or so, encouraging them to depend on the Lord's strength. 
He's reminding them of what the Lord has done for them over and over again and to, to continue to depend on the Lord's strength. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is to remind them of the promises God has made with them, encouraging them to depend on the Lord's faithfulness, uh, reminding them that God has given them promises and that he will remain faithful to these promises. The third thing he says is he warns them to avoid idolatry. Idolatry is the worshiping of uh, false gods. And in their case here, it's, it's neighboring gods of the nations that are remaining in the land. They have other uh, religious systems and they are, Israel is at risk of uh, falling into the idolatry of worshiping those gods. And so he warns that God will leave them to their devices if they turn on him and depend on, on these gods. So those are the three things that he's sort of, he's repeating, is that reminder of, uh, of what God's done for them, to depend on that, that he's given them promises and remain faithful to those promises and warns them not to fall into idolatry. And if they do so, God will leave them to their devices in that idolatry. In other words, Joshua is saying the meaning of your life is to be a redeemed citizen of Israel and therefore a worshiper of the one true God. Joshua is saying, remember that the meaning of your life is that you are a redeemed person of the, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and that you are a worshiper of the one true God. To depend on this meaning, uh, trust this meaning, and find hope in this meaning alone, and that doing so will mean things will go well with them, leading to the continued inheritance of the land that has been promised to them. And also, in other words, do not look to any other gods to give you meaning in life, that doing so uh, will uh, lead to enslavement, and not just enslavement, to death. The central verses here in our passage that are helpful for, for seeing this are right in the middle. If you want to look at the bulletin or in your Bible, uh, verses 6, 7, and 8. Joshua says, and, and recognize, remember when we first started preaching on this several weeks ago, that this language sounds a lot like what God told Joshua in chapter 1. And here he is telling them the same thing. He says, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. So to find a meaning in the Lord means to, first of all, to depend on his word, what he has told them. And Joshua says here to continue to cling to the Lord in this way is the word that he uses to cling to the Lord above anything else. And you can contrast that with what he says about uh, the potential of slipping into idolatry at the end in verses 12 through 13, if you skip down. If you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. 
So just as they are to cling to the Lord, they are not to cling to other gods. Doing so will enslave them and kill them. And the Lord will allow this to happen. I had a mentor, some of you have met him before, he's come here and preached in our Lenten series, uh, Bishop Salmon, who is formerly the Bishop of South Carolina. He has all these really great sayings that he repeats. And one of them, which he's used, he used, he's now, uh, he's uh, unfortunately gone to glory several years ago, but he's used this one on me and I didn't like it. Uh, But uh, he would say this to people, if that's what you want, that's what you should have. If that's what you want, that's what you should have. And that's basically uh, what Joshua is saying here in verse 13. If you want the idolatry, God will let you have it. And it's not going to go well for you. So how does this passage apply to us? Well, our sort of neighboring idols, the false gods that are among us right here in Birmingham, Alabama, or wherever you live, are not so obvious. You know, the, 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 the gods of these religious systems and the, the neighboring nations, it was, it was clear what they were, right? But for us, it isn't so clear. But that doesn't mean that they're not out there, these uh, false idols. They're subtler, often hidden to us. There are, of course, uh, other religions that, are, or that could be uh, tempting to, uh, to us, that we need to avoid, but but those things are obvious. And we who are here are not so much at risk into falling idolatry in that direction, actually. Instead, we're more at risk of worshiping ideas. We're more at risk of worshiping ideas. And they're often ideas that we promote. Uh, There's an author named David Foster Wallace. In 2005, he gave a a great commencement, graduation speech at uh, Kenyon College. Um, And he speaks to this idea. Now, David Foster Wallace was not a Christian. Uh, So some of the things I'm about to read to you from his commencement speech that speak to what I'm trying to say, I, I don't agree with. But the essence of what he says, I do agree with. He says this. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, this is where I agree on the choices. He says, whether it be Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or a wicked mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some intangible set of ethical principles, I would say, just Jesus. But... Bear with me, okay? The rest is really important, what he says. Uh, Where am I? Uh, The the reason for worshiping Jesus, is what I would say, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, and parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, 
you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom, the freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. Well, tragically, uh, Wallace suffered from major depression and ended up taking his own life three years after giving the speech. And here's a man who uh, acutely understood what he was saying in his speech, that the ideas of life we worship in our culture can literally lead, if not just to enslavement, but to death. In our uh, church's traditions, a book of common prayer that we use that's in the background of our service that's in your bulletins. In our book of common prayer, we have a collect, which is a fancy word for the types of prayers that we say at the beginning of our service. And one of them that we say, we'll say this in several uh, months during the season of Lent. One of them is my favorite. It reads like this. O almighty God, who alone canst order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men, Grant unto thy people that they may love the thing which thou commandest, and desire that which thou dost promise, that so among the sundry and manifold changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Now this prayer gives us some nice, poetic, old-fashioned language uh, to help us uh, understand our dilemma of meaning, that we live in a word, world full of sundry and manifold changes. What does that mean? It means various and overarching, ongoing, continual uh, changes. That is, they're all fads and fashion, that so much of our life can be chalked up basically to fashion, ever-changing and at an increasingly rapid pace. Gratefully, though, this prayer also answers the dilemma that God has solved the world's ever-changing chase for meaning by redeeming us through Jesus Christ. Just as the Lord fought for Israel in the promised land, God has fought for all of us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Just as the Lord promised an inheritance of the land of Israel, God has promised us an, internal, an eternal inheritance with him. So here's my word to you to you directly. You can either cling to the God who fights for you, or you can cling to the quote-unquote gods that will eat you alive. Uh, Pastor Timothy Keller, who recently retired at Redeemer Church in New York City, puts it this way, that idolatry is uh, what happens when we turn good things into ultimate things. When we turn good ideas into ultimate ideas for our life, for our identity and our meaning,
So instead, I beg you to find your meaning as a child of God, redeemed by Jesus Christ. Live your life in the knowledge that the creator of the universe knows you, he loves you, has fought for you, and will fight for you, and he has given you even greater promises for your future and eternity with him. If you don't do this and turn your back on him, he may give you what you desire. And that picture is not pretty. It's even horrific, I would say. As Wallace said, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. So find your meaning as a child of God redeemed by Jesus Christ alone. Maintaining trust in this meaning will not be easy. Just as the, the future of Israel, as if you keep on reading Old, the Old Testament, was not easy for them. This is why Moses gave the following instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And in other words, be reminded of this good news of your identity and meaning all the time and everywhere. And Israel needed to be reminded of the meaning of their lives all the time and everywhere, and so do we. So I say, hear, O people of God, redeemed by Jesus Christ. The Lord has fought for you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Worship the one true God. Cling to him and find your meaning in him. Do not be misled by the false gods of our society that will eat you alive. Instead, fix your hearts where true joys are to be found, namely through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.